Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gets you inside access to how some of retail real estate's most successful leaders went from your average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at CM for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality, and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. Ever hear of those CEOs or entrepreneurs talking about how important philanthropy is and how sometimes it doesn't necessarily feel that genuine? Stephen Patel is the exact opposite of that. I'm 100% convinced in getting to know him over the last couple of years as a friend and mentor that he wakes up every day with a purpose of becoming more successful than he was the day before with one of the main reasons being to give back giving back with his time, giving back with his resources. And I can't express to you how much admiration I have for that. And it's something that I'm looking forward to sharing with you in this episode with him. We talked about everything from his ordinary upbringing to his completely contrarian view on proposed tax laws and economic insight as it relates to commercial real estate. He's as entertaining and as certainly as intelligent as any guest that we've had thus far. And I can't wait for you guys to hear the episode. An incredible pioneer in our business. So fortunate to have Stephen Patel on our show today. Stephen, how are you? Wonderful today. How are you? I can't complain. I'm with you. So any day on a Friday, I'm with you. I'm excited about. So obviously, for those who don't know, because they're in different regions of the country, you have a, a company that you've built up over a number of years now called Terra Nova. Give us the quick spiel on Terra Nova, and then we'll dive into your background. Terranova today is a multi-asset, multi-strategy, alternate investment portfolio. We have a number of businesses, both within and outside the commercial real estate industry. Total assets under management are just over a billion dollars. You know, the the bottom down from just over 150 people. We had a big third-party management leasing portfolio, which we moved away from in starting in 2006. And, and today we only manage our own assets. Wonderful. Tell me about your background. Where are you from? How did you grow up? What's the story there? I was born July 19th, 1956 in Jackson Memorial Hospital, a public hospital in downtown Miami. I used to always ask my dad why. He said it was free. <laughs> okay. We liked free. I went to Miami-Dade County Public School from first through 12th grade, to you know, Blue Lakes Elementary School. Uh, before it was a special needs school. And then Palmetto, what is now called Middle and Palmetto Senior, which is most unusual in that Jeff Bezos also went to Palmetto and Vivek Murthy, our current Surgeon General, also went there. Oh, wow. So you're some pretty famous alumni. Yeah, I like to say I was one of the underperformers. (laughs) There you go. And did you have siblings? What was the household like? Yes, of course, I had siblings. I had an older brother who I... Won't see until I have dinner with him tonight with our spouses and my mother in honor of her 88th birthday, which is today. You know, we had a big huddle this morning on which wines to bring, to bring and what we got that all resolved. Was that a pretty big debate at, at the home or? Well, you know, we're all kind of big into wine. So he's bringing an undisclosed white wine and I'm bringing a 2001 Behringer Private Reserve and a 1998 Chateau Beau Castel Chateau de So it should be good. And I have a younger sister, my brother, uh, by the way, and my cousin took over my grandparents' wine and gourmet store that's been in the family for, 
I think now 68 years that he lives in Miami with his wife and also his kids and their kids, as I live in Miami with my kids and their kids. And then I have a younger sister who's a physician in Rochester, New York. So you grew up with parents in the retail business then? Grandparents. My Grandparents, excuse me. An attorney and my mother was a school teacher. Okay. So you're the oldest, middle? I'm the middle child. Got it. Got it, got it. Coming with all of the complexes of a typical and insecurities of a typical middle child. You know, I always like to ask that question because I've had the fortune of having some incredible guests on this show. And a lot of them have channeled middle child syndrome or benefits, however you want to look at it, into incredibly successful careers. So you are in good company with some of the other folks that have been on the show. So I always like to ask that question. What were you like as a student growing up as a kid? I mean, were you well-behaved? Were your grades good? Or were you a little bit on the edge? What was Stephen like as a child? So I won the American Legion Award at graduating elementary school in the spelling bee. Through ninth grade, I was an exceptional student. And you know, my high school, we were on split shifts. You know, I went from 1155 to 455. There were 1,240 students in my graduating class, over 20 of which graduated without being able to read. You know, it was an enormous public school. So I was somewhat disaffected and you know, engaged in a lot of social action activities, you know, to try to do good in the community. And that was all, you know, it was good. Look, I had really an idyllic growing up. You know, I came from an intact family, no divorces. Everyone lived a long time. My grandparents and great-grandparents were all in town. We had constant family gatherings, which we still have. I mean, Friday and every Sunday night still at our house. And by the way, even more amazing is I have three adult kids now who all live within a half a block of me who are married and each of them have two kids. So like yesterday morning by 8 a.m., I had already seen two of my grandchildren. Can't beat that. Can't beat that. Everyone tells me I'm so lucky. And I said, there was no luck in that. That was a very well-executed, very expensive plan. (laughs) I I will take that one with me. That was great. So you said you were an exceptional student until ninth grade. There's a few more years, of course, in high school. So I think everybody's kind of wondering what happened after that. Yeah. So I was at this gigantic high school. It was very impersonal. And, you know, I just found other areas that were important to me. You know, I was president of all the Jewish youth groups in the state of Florida in 11th grade, the largest one in the history of Florida, still today in 12th grade at my synagogue. I was always very involved in all kinds of social action activities, whether we're supporting the farm workers or local politics. I just, you know, I found a million activities to keep me busy. I didn't do that well in 10th and 11th and 12th grade, but I crushed the SATs and I was fortunate to get into a bunch of really good schools. And of all those really good schools you chose to attend? Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. There you go. Followed by my sister two years later and my son also as a 2010 graduate. Got it. Well, that's quite impressive for those unfamiliar with Bowdoin. I mean, top-notch Ivy League-like school. Is that? I mean, that's fair to say. I don't know if I'm overstepping, but that's... Obviously, more important is I probably could never get in today. <laughs> Recent year, 7% of the applicants were admitted. But back then, I, they thought I could play a sport, which I did. And I fulfilled the geographical distribution requirements. There you so go. I had some advantages. And what sport did you play in college? I played baseball all through college, but not well. (laughs) Everyone always asked me, what did I play? And I told them my most valuable role was tutor on the bus. 
<laughs> okay, everybody's got a contribution to make to the team. So a popular one for a lot of people too would have been left out, which is good baseball uh, fun, but we'll save my terrible cheesy jokes for another time. So you studied what there? Economics. Got it. And so at some point, you know, while you're there, you're playing baseball, you're an econ, you're doing great in school. What happens next? I mean, obviously you go from being a college student at some point to being in the commercial real estate business. Kind of walk us through that path and how you got there. I did my first semester junior year in Washington, D.C. I worked at the Congressional Budget Office. That I went. I left to work as paid staff in the Carter campaign. I went back to the Congressional Budget Office, finished my junior year, went back to D.C. again that summer, working on the writing the revenue estimating model for the Congressional Budget Office. I once had some computer skills that I don't have anymore. I came back as a senior, was nominated by our president for a Rhodes Scholarship, a Marshall Scholarship, and a Watson Fellowship. I made the cuts from 800 in the Southeast region of both the Rhodes and the Marshall. I got kicked out of the Rhodes process a couple of days before my interview because the chair of the committee was my dad's boss. He was a professor at the law school and she was the dean. I had the Marshall interview but I never got to see how it turned out because I got the Watson and the through from the Marshall. Wow. Bad a student as I was in high school, I was a really hardworking student in college. And the critical lesson of Bowdoin, besides you know, learning to critically communicate both orally and in writing, was I work all the time. And that's a work ethic that has really probably been the most dispositive causation of whatever business success I had. You know, I always said I was never the smartest guy in the room, but I was going to outwork everyone. And I still try to outwork everyone. Common theme of the, some of the successful people we've had on here. And I, I know you all enough to know, obviously we have a personal relationship outside of this, that that tireless work ethic is quite real. I know you and I have had a lot of deep philosophical conversations about the business on whether if it's Saturday afternoon or Tuesday morning, it doesn't matter. It's obviously quite admirable and influential for someone like myself who would love to be in a similar position that uh, you've put yourself in at some point in time. So I appreciate that sentiment there about the work ethic side. So you obviously received the Watson and and I'll go ahead and shut up and let you continue on with your story here because I think everybody's wanting to know how it all went down. So the Watson Fellowship is a grant that comes from the Watson Foundation that was endowed by the family of Thomas J. Watson, the founder of IBM. Back then... They were based in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, although the foundation headquarters has since moved to New York City. And applicants propose a project that the foundation calls a Bandariar, a year of wandering outside of the United States, where they propose a project. And following up on a paper that I had written while at the Congressional Budget Office, I proposed a study of the motivations behind European investment in the United States. That was uncharacteristic for a Watson Fellowship because it had a business slant and direction that most don't. So I spent a year in Europe uh, meeting with bankers, lawyers, and private companies and investors on why they were investing in the United States. While there, I wrote longhand, of course, because there were no computers back then and certainly no emails and no cell phones. I wrote a column that was published in Daily Business Review in Miami, you know, Miami's version of Frames that was published every other week throughout the year. So I got back and I got all kinds of job offers. Yeah, because you had the intellect of a Watson fellow and the 
as you say, the slant and the approach of thinking about it from a business perspective. And it had me wondering while you were telling that part of the story, I mean, what motivated you to even want to take that angle? I mean, was entrepreneurship and commerce and business something that was always interesting to you leading up to that? Or what was sort of the impetus behind choosing that topic to approach during your Watson Fellowship? My dad was an attorney and his specialty was organizing the investments of non-resident investors in a manner as such to minimize their taxes and to maximize their anonymity. So I had had really a lifetime of meeting these kind of investors and always, whether it was at a restaurant or at the house, would ask them why they would go so far away to invest because the risks of currency variations and changing tax laws was always complicated. And, you know, I always thought you could make much more money staying home and investing in things you knew better. Never did I think that, you know, we would have investment. We would have over the years, multiple investments in Portugal and Germany and Austria and Hungary, to name a few. I never thought that would happen. But, you know, diversification and political risk management are always important. Sure. So... The writing's on the wall. Everybody recognizes pretty early in your adult life and your career that you're going to be a rock star and that anybody's going to want you to be a part of the organization. So you had a pick of the litter as far as job opportunities go. What did you end up doing? So what I ended up doing is while away, I had applied to law school. I got a scholarship to attend the University of Miami. I got into some other bigger name ones, but my sister was a year from starting medical school and I thought it was a big burden. My dad was a great coach and he said, you can go on one of those big name ones and you'll end up being a lawyer and you'll live in New York and you'll make a bunch of money and you'll wake up in your early 50s and be miserable. And if you want to be in business, you should come to Miami because you'll know lots of lawyers and judges and private companies and people will grow up that you went to school with and run big businesses. The scholarship kind of pushed me over the edge and and helped me make that decision. So I went, so I ended up going to law school in Miami. At the same time, I had accepted a job with a real estate company, saying no to a couple of big wealth management jobs um, with both Goldman Sachs and Drexel Burnham, which was a big deal back then <laughs> until they kind of blew up. And I worked at a local real estate company from really where I started law school through October of my second year. And you were doing legal work with real estate owner? So the goal was I had now knew all these investors from Europe that wanted to invest in the United States and the real estate company had investment opportunities. So I made a marriage. I, of course, had no idea what the right compensation was. So I called the head of job placement at Bowdoin and said, what was the most money anyone got that year? And he said $15,000 to go into JP Morgan's management trainee program in New York City. So I said, I wanted $15,000. They quickly said yes, which was a sign of a bad negotiation because I didn't ask enough. And 14 months later, my we had done a number of transactions. My salary was up to 45000 Whoa. And by the way, it doesn't seem like a lot today because I don't think turnover is anyone making that little. But in 1979, it was a lot of money. Even the fact that it was a lot of money in 1979, the bigger thing to me that stood out is that it tripled in such a short amount of time. I mean, clearly you had provided a tremendous amount of value to your employer at that point. It was actually a little better than triple because they gave me a very generous expense account as well. 
Anyway, they, one day I went to law school in the morning and showed up at work. And you know, all of a sudden I was ushered into a conference room with the father and son. And they said they had a really good opportunity for me. And of course, they had a pencil spreadsheet because there were no computers back then. And they explained to me how much more money I would have made if I was commission only. And I told them that you know my goal was not to make the most amount of money, but it was to learn and position myself for the moment I graduated law school in a couple of years, and so I could come work full time. And I asked them if I could borrow the spreadsheet, which they said okay. And I went home that night and told my then fiance, now wife, who I met in Paris during my Watson year, I told her that I was going to go in the next day and quit because their math was perfect, and I figured that if I would make all of it instead of just half of it, I would really make a lot of money. And so I did. Just so we're clear on how you were making, you selling buildings, leasing. I mean, what were you doing on a day-to-day? The company had investment opportunities and I brought people I knew in. Got it. You're raising capital. And every time a deal was done, I got a big bonus. Got it. First of all, your fiance's reaction, now wife's reaction at that time was? Bad. Very bad or bad? Listen, my wife is very conservative and was the daughter of two professional and still in Germany. I mean, they both passed since then, but she was not, not used to high-risk activities. I mean, and by the way, higher risk was already moving halfway around the world for me. That was a big enough risk. Now doing it with someone who was unemployed was worse. <laughs> I'm sure. But you know, that was in October. And you know, I had some savings. And March of that year, a week before we closed, we the marriage closed. <laughs> <laughs> We closed another deal. I had contracted in November to buy a strip shopping center of 27,700 feet. The price was $1,951,000, 650, a million of it was a mortgage at 17 and a quarter percent, which was a market rate at that time. Wow. The mortgage that as rates rose in the first, I kept beating down the rate. So our all in rate was about 12,000 of the Equity side of the capital structure was participating debt from a German who I had met during my Watson year. And then 351 of it was local, doctors and lawyers. It was, you know, it was structured tax advantage for the domestic investors and income focused on the non-resident investor. And you know, I kept $27,700 of a deal, which was one of 13 shares. And we started managing and leasing it, of course, without a lot of experience. I mean, with no experience. Okay. So what happens next on the deal? So the deal was good for a while. We refinanced, we got our money out. It was on leased land. We depreciated 100% of the building. Tax Reform Act of 86 hit. And the economy like plunged into distress. All the SNLs were in trouble. Lots of government takeovers. We eventually, after returning all the capital, gave it back to the land source. That was one of my first failures. And in that 87, 88 era, there were three failures. Two deals went back to landlessors and we had a foreclosure. The foreclosure was friendly. There was no fighting. And again, in two of the three deals, we had already financed out, but you know, it was painful. And I had two years where the recapture, the tax due on my recapture exceeded my income. That was bad. Yeah, it doesn't sound very good. Yeah, I put a second mortgage on my house and somehow muddled through. And at the time, we were probably 15 people, which was large for a real estate company in Miami. There were no big national shops yet. And we had 
management people and leasing people and lawyers and accountants. And so we roared into the third-party management leasing business. So the fee business was in an attempt to kind of salvage... I don't know if salvage is the right word, but... Oh, no. I would say the fee business was was the only thing left. Our equity was gone. We had a couple other deals that we were in with other people that we were running too that we did have remaining equity and we did end up making lots of money. And one of them, this game plaza now renamed Midpoint, we still have a large investment in, but we stopped managing it some years ago. You know, our focus changed and that was not the right asset for us anymore. So we had a right of first refusal on a sale offer. I brought it to my good friend, Jerome Valera Equity Fund and said, I wanted to make a sizable unpromoted investment and control the selling and financing going forward, but I didn't want anything to do with the operations of that asset because we had run it now for almost 30 years. Got it. Wow. And that's kind of been our tradition. You know, most of our assets, we tend to own a very long time. Which I appreciate that perspective on the business plan. But I do want to go back because you basically... So just to recap for a second, you've got this great job. They're paying you handsomely. They come in and they want to talk to you about a promotion. And you go home and you said, I'm going to quit which you did the next day, it sounds like. Then you started syndicating equity, came up with a deal that was good for a while. And this was the birth of Terra Nova. Is that... You called the company Terra Nova at that time? Is that right? Yeah. So the company was legally incorporated in July 1980. I really didn't use it. And then in October of 81, we now I leafed through a foreign names dictionary and picked Terra Nova, which is Latin for either new land or new world. In Europe where I thought most of my investors would come from, everyone with a high school education has taken a few years of Latin, so they would know what it meant. And you know, the majority of our community in Miami that's Hispanic, because it's Latin is so close to Spanish, they would know what it meant. And I would just have to figure out how to persuade the minority in Miami what it meant. Sure. The minority meaning? You know, the poor, the poor guys like me who were born and spoke English at the time. Well, I- <laughs> Some other languages. (laughs) But we built a huge third-party management leasing business. Is that and that happened right after buying that first deal or after we bought the first deal and then there was another one and another one. There were three in the first two years. We had all these people and then we started getting calls. Will you manage this? Will you lease? It just grew. I always joke that people with great success afterwards, the ends of their careers, they say they were young and they had a vision. I always think that's a lie. Usually they did one thing right and it worked. And they did it again and it worked again. And all of a sudden they woke up and they had a bunch of that kind of business and it was working really well. And then they had a vision. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It worked a bunch of times over and over and then they decided what they were going to do. I like that. That's really the truth. So we built at the peak, we we're managing close to 10 million feet. And we had a bunch of office, some industrial, but our biggest, our core business was anchor retail around Florida. And it was good. And we made a lot of money. And not only were we managed in leasing, you know, we had the most dominant selling operation. We also had a financing operation. And we were making money in all the places. Developing construction management, we just had very robust fee streams. And it was good. And we took all our profit. I lived in the same house for 33 years. And we just started buying deals quietly because we wanted our third-party clients to think that we were focused on them primarily. And we got up to about 10 deals that we had moved on from friends and family syndications to partnerships with high net worth individuals. And then we moved on from that and had a series of just 
marvelous institutional partners. And the biggest being principal. And then our key guy principal left and went to SSR, which was owned by MetLife. Met sold SSR to BlackRock. So we, we stayed with the same guy. And that was really you know, the same chief investment officer for almost 20 years. Of course, in 2008 and 9, everyone at the top of these firms got whacked. We did deals with a few different places. And you know, today we have just one equity partner, which is Morgan Stanley's prime property fund. Wow. And did you know... I mean, look, you've obviously worked on a abundance of different businesses and asset types within commercial real estate. I mean, did you know that even going back from when you were working for the family office prior to you starting Terra Nova, did you know that you were an entrepreneur from the beginning? Did you know that you wanted to build a commercial real estate portfolio? I mean, I know you made the reference that everybody does something and it works and then they become a visionary at the end. But certainly you had some sort of at least loose vision of what, not necessarily the particulars of the strategy, but high level of what you wanted to do? Or did you just do what felt right at the given time? I mean, what was sort of that dynamic like, at least in your head? I always had a huge agenda to do good charitably and not just to write checks, but to engage. And, you know, that took resources. So I need to make a lot of money to fulfill that dream. I think always we've tried to do the right thing and both professionally and personally, and also to have great success in our business endeavors. I never really counted the money while it was going on. It just ended up being a lot. And the challenge of, you know, when you own assets for a very long time, and you just wake up and you're carrying it on your balance sheet at one level, and all of a sudden you get an appraisal or an unsolicited offer, or you go to refinance and you wake up and it's worth way more than you imagine. I mean, we have that issue with our headquarters office building now that we bought 20 years ago for three seven. I thought it was worth 10. We got an unsolicited offer at 14. We did two broker opinions values at 20. We had recalculated. We had miscalculated the size because we ran it as a home, not as an investment. And the number keeps growing. And we're probably going to think about trading it this year after being here for a long, long time. But you know, our business plan changed and our, our space needs changed. But I think we've made some good calls on shifting our focus in terms of different assets, on when to finance and when to sell. And every time there's a downturn, you know, we kind of go all in on being an acquirer. Sure. We went from the beginning to managing cash flow because we didn't have any assets. And you know, today we're viciously focused on managing our balance sheet. I keep going back to what you referenced about doing something that, that worked over and over and then it being... I mean, what was your big break? You know, A lot of the people on this show have a couple of jobs working for other people and, and they even run big departments at publicly traded companies or what have you. And they, for me, for example... When I was 27, Peb took a flyer on me and allowed me to come in and run their leasing platform. Like That was my big break job, if you will. Obviously, your story is a little different. You had one job for a brief amount of time and then started Terra Nova. Is there something that you found that was sort of a big turning point in your career into the Terra Nova story, if you will, because they're synonymous, that a decision that you made, whether if it was entering in the third-party business or buying a certain property that sort of put you on the map and, and allowed you to, to grow to continue executing on growing and get it to where you felt like your balance sheet, like you looked overnight and you're like, wow. And I think it started because of this particular deal that we bought or this strategy that we took. Look, I think the thing that I did the best was I hired... I don't know whether they picked me or I picked them. I've just had the blessing of hiring a series of exceptional 
leaders who came and stayed a long time. I mean, obviously, Beth Azar was here 18 years, and our president toward the end, Trish Blasey, was the next president. Mindy McElroy been here now a lot. There she's in her 24th year with the company, is the president of you know, the dominant retail guy at Collier's. Helen Eskenazi was with us 13 years, the president of Saglo, Q Chen. He was in our training program and was with us a bunch of years. I mean, our alums are leading retail leasing. I mean, the head of retail leasing Peach Line Wolbright. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Our alums are everywhere. And while their departures aggravated me in my youth, you know, I of course, have matured or at least rationalized it to say that we hired incredibly entrepreneurial people that did very well and at the right stage were ready to go do their own thing. A number of them on the deals we've owned forever, Alan and Beth are still invested in a deal with us, although we've financed out three times. So no one has any investment, but we're just distributing again this quarter. And I think that's been the most important thing. I picked great people, they pushed me. And I pushed them and we all ended up in a better place and we all remain very close friends. Love that. That doesn't shock me that you answered the question that way, given that we've spent some time talking over the years. It's, uh... I mean, it's just without precedent in South Florida that one firm, not just that they came through the doors and spent years and years here, but that they came as rookies and were trained and then went and did great things. So, you know, we think our hiring process was good, you know, and everyone used to complain, you have so many tests and so many interviews and it's got to be right. And we said, listen, we got to get it right. I think all these businesses are more about the people than anything else. Look, I'm still a good student of economics. I watch interest rates and inflation and capital flows, and public markets and private markets. And everyone calls and says, what, what should we be doing now? But I think ultimately it was the people that drove our profits more than anything else. Amazing wisdom. And I'm Really fortunate that I'm thankful that you shared that because a lot of people will overanalyze the strategy. But if you've got a lot of dynamic, great people in the same room, no matter if you're buying a core plus apartments or deep value add retail, or you're investing in a totally different company, which I know you've got a portfolio of different things that you invested in, if you get the right people in place, it seems to work. And I've heard that enough times. And just to have that message reiterated from someone who's executed and done it your stature. I think it's of extreme value for our, our listeners. And I really appreciate that. I mean, I can almost go back to every one of our bigger investments and say, oh, it was someone else at the shop that pushed me. I mean, Palm and Park Hill were two centers that we bought for $9 million that we sold one of them for after financing out twice for 26 And the other one is worth about 50 today. We own it still. We financed it out three times and sold it out parcel for six three. Alan Eskenazi loved those deals and we swung hard for them. Lincoln Road never would have happened if Minnie hadn't beaten me up and saying, you know, stop being so cheap and just go buy it already. That was the first one. The second one, you know, was easier. And look, we had done Miracle Mile initially with BlackRock and 2009 happened and they needed some liquidity and pushed us to sell. And Minnie said, you have to buy them out. And we did. So I looked through the portfolio. Beth drove the training program, which, you know, at the peak, we had 12 retail leasing agents. Each one drove a different piece of our business. I would say they were the directors and I was the producer. To me, the message I take in the deals are great. And the names that you're able to drop at the portfolio as someone who spent some time in South Florida, it's unprecedentedly strong real estate. 
But the biggest takeaway for me in that message is despite the fact that you call the shots, you're the one writing the check, you could have looked at it and said, I'm the boss and I want to do it this way. You were receptive to the team that you were paying to give their insight and wisdom on. You you not only pulled the trigger on bringing in the right people, but when they had something to say and they felt passionate about something, you were open ears, you listened to their argument and you believed in their gut feeling and it's paid off and dividends for you. And I think there's something to be said for that. And I give you a tremendous amount of credit for doing that. And it's awesome to hear because oftentimes you hear about, especially at family offices, that it's all about what the... And I give the the Wiener family was excellent about this like you are. If somebody who knew what they were doing and was well-respected within the organization had a really good idea and a recommendation, that was not only heard, but if it made sense, the patriarch, which in Terranova's case, obviously is you, was willing and able to receive that perspective and go out and trust and execute on it. And I overwhelmingly commend you for that because it doesn't happen all the time. And I think that's a huge reason, as you've already alluded to, why you guys have had such a huge amount of success over the years. The other thing we did is when it was harvest time, we shared. And look, when we did the recap on Lincoln Road and our share was 36 million, five of it was spread around the company. Love that. And that contractual. That was because it was the right thing to do. Oh, it wasn't contractual. Wow. I held all the GP share, but I took a big chunk of it and made sure everyone ate well. And for most everyone, including me, it was the payday of a lifetime. Wow. But I would say Lincoln Road bought a lot of houses. Good. That's what it's all about. I mean, if there's no one to share it with, it's not that exciting. Incredible. Very inspirational. Although I stayed in the same house. (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. Something tells me you weren't slouching it. So that's good. No, I was. But anyway, years later, I did upgrade finally. I moved a half a block away. I always joke that I have voted in the same precinct now for almost 40 years. There's something to be said for that. You're Miami through and through. What's the biggest curveball you've ever been thrown? Oh, gosh. I mean, first of all, obviously, I've been through six downturns Downturns now. This one was overwhelmingly the worst, but April and May. I mean, I knew that our family was going to, the company would be okay financially. I mean, we had enough out and enough unlevered assets that we were going to be fine. But I had lunch with one of our big lenders yesterday, and they were teasing me that when the, the shutdown commenced, I was out skiing in Colorado. I came home a few days early. We made the decision on Wednesday night to come. Of course, my wife still went skiing on Thursday. I stayed home in our apartment, terrified, called everyone to redo the budgets and slash expenses. And I flew home Thursday. Friday morning, I called our biggest lenders and said, if our tenants don't pay, we're not paying. The lender yesterday said, I was the first call I got like that in the entire country. <laughs> wow. I said, I said, well, you can't punish me for having a good vision. I mean, you should be thankful. It turns out, look, our collections were great. You know, we did do some April-May deferrals, but other than Steinmark, who went broke, and Regal, we ended up with some well-publicized, successful, for our point of view, court decisions. All the deferrals were paid back by the end of December. And everyone is back paying full rent and fully operating on all our portfolio. Obviously, the suburban retail performed much better than the urban retail because the urban retail depends on office tenants and tourism, which still are not fully recovered. So that was a huge curveball. And by the way, once you go through a bunch of downturns, you kind of know what's coming. To the extent that there were financial ones after 86, 88, 
we took on a very different leverage strategy. A lot of our portfolio today has no debt on it, including Lincoln Road. I mean, not a penny. Wow. Yeah, it had. And I went to our partner a couple of years ago. We had a $125 million senior piece. I said, let's pay it off. And it, you know, I had to come up with a chunk of cash. But you know, look, it's a very forgiving strategy and really enhances cash flow. And we still have sufficient liquidity to buy new things. And we're buying in a June, we'll close on our 12th building on Miracle Mile, the California Pizza Kitchen building. That it only took me like 16 years to get that over the goal line. Pay for persistence. Love that. Love those stories. So this past year was the biggest curveball you've been through. Yeah. Look, the one in the late 80s was bad. You know, when I was young and completely unprepared and had no balance sheet and had nothing to lose. And I was young and dumb. When the others occurred, you know, I always said, if this ever comes back, we're doing this differently. And our fee business was so good that could carry us through everything. And I used to always say that in good times, we're going to make money on the equity. In bad times, lenders are going to foreclose and hire us. We're going to make money on fees. But you know, we have a business plan that no matter where we are in the cycle, we can perform. You know, Mindy really kind of by 2006 was tiring of the third-party business. And we started resigning business because we just had enough of our own. And she just hated that every time the client got a new asset manager, starting all over again. So we stopped doing that. And you know, by 2007, we were out of that business entirely. And that was a good move. People say to me, what's the biggest mistake you ever made? I said, clearly not exiting the third-party business earlier. Oh, wow. I'm surprised you said that. Because the minute we had the balance sheet, we should have gone all in on the equity side. And it was just a distraction because you risk getting fired on third-party business. It always got more resources than our own business, which made no logical sense. Right. But that's what everybody does. So we just said, we're not doing that anymore. So we transitioned to fewer, vastly more expensive assets in terms of per square foot values. You know, we roared into, we did our first urban deal about 18 years ago. It's much easier. No parking lots, no landscaping, no lighting, no slip and falls. It's a roof. And the rents are way higher. I mean, our peak rent on Lincoln Road at the peak was 357 a foot with 18 expenses. It's not there anymore. You know, but we really presided over a run-up in expenses and valuation that in South Florida has been unprecedented. And that's added all kinds of value. But I didn't know. We bought our first Lincoln Road with rents at about 75 a foot, thinking we could get to 100. We didn't know where they were going. But we knew, we knew Forever 21 and Zara were negotiating deals on the street. We thought that a transition was underway. We've experienced similar things in Miracle Mile, where when we went in, rents were in the 18 to $25 a foot range, and we just did a $75 a foot lease. So in magnitude, it's been just an extraordinary run on those assets. But at this moment in time, urban retail has not performed as well as suburban. So Good news is we have the balance sheet to write it out. We do still have some debt in Coral Gables, and you know we're fine. We've had a huge run of leasing in the last 14 months that we just can't figure out. And the hottest segment has been restaurants. I mean, obviously, the restaurant activity in South Florida has made national news repetitively. But normally, when we lose a restaurant tenant, we get walls. We just get walls. Sure. When we lose a restaurant in the last 14 months, we get tables, chairs knives, forks, plates, ovens. 
dishwashers, ice makers, coffee machines. So this has just been an exceptional opportunity for entrepreneurial restaurant players to come in at a much lower cost than historically. And we've been rewarded with great operators and great rates. Amazing. I'm really glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that you guys have been able to rebound from the curveball if you are hit it out of the park to keep it punny. I'm excited to ask you this question because you bring a wealth of experience and have seen so many different things. And I know it's going to cause you to hesitate at least for a second, but I'm comfortable asking you, what's the craziest deal you've ever worked on? Oh, crazy. I mean, you know, look, I think we're very disciplined. It can be a lease. It can be anything. And I know you're not short for them. I know you're not short for them. It's just a function of which one you choose to tell us about. Look, in 98, I've gotten bored a few times and I've looked for an opportunity. So 98 with another friend, we went out to race to get a $300 million line of credit to do sale lease specs in the gas station industry. And we got it. Lehman Brothers gave us a $300 million line. This is a 98. That's probably like close to a billion dollars today. That was a lot of money back then. It was a lot of money now. I remember coming home after there was months of negotiations. The last three months, I was in New York three days a week. Beth was running the show. They required me to get off all public company boards and make someone else president so I could focus on them because they're making a big investment. Beth had been the EVP for a while and then went and was just doing some leasing and I brought her back in and said, you need to be the president. She did. And, you know, we went to do sale leasebacks in an industry I knew nothing about all over the country. It was really good for the first couple of years. We were all set. We had done the first $100 million in transactions. We were going to securitize the leases for the bond offering. They would have paid off in about 14 years. And then we would have had all this free cash flow and it was great. And then the debt in the franchise finance sector stopped performing. Lehman turned off our line. I got to fire everyone but two, including my partners. And you know, we went into the asset management business. Then, of course, our biggest tenant that we'd done a few transactions with also defaulted. Years of litigation ensued. We now own that business. And you know, it's people always say to me, how did you get into the operating gas station convenience store and fuel distribution business? I said, we made a bad deal. <laughs> it's funny. I knew you had that company. I didn't know how you got there, though. I'm really glad that I got to hear that. <laughs> yeah, so that was a crazy deal. Yeah, I would say so. Others, by the way, you know, we were in the dry cleaning business. We were up over 100 stores. I own 45% of it. I had a friend that had brought me and he on 45. And, you know, they just kept changing their controllers and it made me nervous. So I finally said, just buy me out. So I got all my money back after a few years. And then like a year later, all the drama with Herc, the dry cleaning agent that created environmental project problems came. And of course, I was out. Everyone else got named. And they said, how did I know? I said, I didn't know. I got lucky. Sheesh. Wow. But I had a lot of getting lucky things like that over my career. Yeah. It's funny how that works out when you're the hardest worker. It's a repetitive theme on this show. I remember when we were closing our second transaction with Morgan Stanley and we're up in their boardroom and the woman who's now their head of North American real estate said to Mindy, so how do you manage Stephen? And Mindy goes, oh, no, no, you don't manage Stephen. You just kind of let him do his thing. And he doesn't all, can't always articulate why he feels something, but he will eventually get there. And she goes, after all these years, we just kind of let him go and we back him up because he's been right more than not. And when we're wrong, we cut fast. Yeah. We have no problem saying, 
that's a bad trait. Let's get out. Something to be said for that. A lot of people try to hold on to the emotional attachment of it and have and struggle with the concept of at least getting their equity back out or whatever it may be in that they have invested into that deal. But cutting bait and moving on. Sometimes there's a lot of value in failing fast as opposed to dragging out the failure and saying, look, it happened. It is what it is and move on. I really am not emotionally attached to any of the real estate or businesses. I'm probably feeling a little anxiety about our office building. Not because I love the building, just because I like my office and I don't want to move and I've been coming to work here every day for now almost 20 years. But it's time. I'll be looking out for the headlines on it. And then I'm going to ask, where are you going to work? (laughs) You'll figure that out later, I'm sure. But Look, if the numbers that the investment community is telling us, everyone said, where are we going to go? I said, we work. I don't know. We'll probably buy another building. You'll figure it out. I believe you guys will figure it out. It's a high-class problem. No doubt about that. No doubt about that. Not a whole lot of people want to continue to complain about it. That's for sure, which I know you won't. I mean, look, as far as experience and exposure to different things and deals and people, I mean, the people that you've interacted with over the years, it's a who's who of who's done massively successful things in whatever the industry may be. This show, if somebody's listening to this show and they're at this point of it, they're obviously interested in improving themselves. And so I would ask you, like, particularly the people who are relatively new into the business, who are less experienced than you, which you've been at it a while now, no ifs, ands, or buts about that. You think four years is a while? <laughs> it's longer than me. I'll be the first to admit. So what type of advice do you have for someone like myself or people who are relatively new to the business after being through six recessions and multiple asset classes and everything that you've been exposed to? Yeah, I'll tell you what I tell my kids. Keep your lifestyles in check. You do not need to drive a fancy car to impress your friends. You don't need to live in a big house to impress your friends. I mean, Alan Eskenazi always used to tease me what I did with my money. And I used to tell them I reinvested. Look, I eventually, in 2016, did buy a very different kind of house. But I, not until recently, look, I've flown differently now for 25 years, but I didn't do it because initially, I, didn't, I did it because I wanted to be home for Friday night dinner with my family. I was traveling three days a week, buying gas stations. I just needed a way to get, get around the country quickly. So I think you keep your overhead in check. You know, we've always at Terranova tried to keep salaries more modest and let people have more of an eat what they feel approach. I mean, overall, I think our team has done very, very well, but you just keep our overhead. We're obsessive about keeping expenses low, so we're always ready for a downturn. That's number two. Look, I think my capital markets knowledge is unusual. But I think it's because I read, I stopped reading fiction, not because I didn't like it, but because I was running out of time and had a lot more to learn. And I still don't read fiction. I read a ton of periodicals every morning. And all my friends and colleagues at work all say I'm their private clipping service because I'm sending articles to everyone every morning. I need more articles. I feel like I'm getting short shades in the articles. How do I get into the article email from Stephen? I'll remember tomorrow. All right, good. Thank you. So look, I want to be um, better educated about our industry, about our tenants. I talk to industry analysts all the time on the street. I just want to be better educated than everyone else. So if I'm negotiating with a tenant, you know, in April, they would say, oh, we can't pay rent. I would say, listen, your market cap's $3.5 billion. That's more than mine. You can pay rent. You know, and I would say, I listened to your earnings call yesterday and you made a lot of money on your internet sales. You can pay rent. Through a number of organizations, I know the CEOs of a lot of major retailers. 
So I just have different levels of access than I used to. But it really dates back to we had this incredible relationship with Publix that you know, we probably at the peak had over 30 stores and were their biggest landlord. I knew Charlie Jenkins. He was the head of real estate when I was a baby in the business. Of course, eventually he became the chairman and now he's still on the board, but not in a day-to-day role. The ability to get him on the phone to make the deal made all the difference in the world. And we had that kind of access because of some of the organizations I was in, like YPO or some of the charitable things I did. And those were just enormous helps in getting deals over the goal line. I don't know how many deals we did with haircut, but you know, I knew Dennis Ratner forever. Of course. We skied together and we ate together and we just had, we built really good relationships. And a lot of those began at shopping center conventions. I remember my first Vegas convention. I was in my probably 25, 26, and I went out. Of course, I had no appointments, but I was somewhat astounded. So I marched in to pay less shoes because I tenant paying percentage rent. They were a big tenant at the time. And I asked for the real estate representative that handled Miami. It was Ben Stanton about everything. And I said, I'm only here to thank you for paying us percentage rent. That was my first appointment. There you go. Well, I never went back with no appointments again. Sure. I'm really glad that you brought up reading because that's actually next on my list to talk about with you because I know you're obsessed with education. What's this going to be a tough one too, sort of like the crazy deal one, so be ready. But what's the one book that changed your life? When I read In Search of Excellence, which was Tom Peters' first book, I was so wowed that I bought it for all the leaders in our company. And then he was in town in the speech the next month. I took everyone to see him. I remember the part was he said, if you want more sales, hire more salespeople. I think that kind of opened my eyes that I should probably open my wallet a little bit and spend some more money and try to grow the business because I was always so nervous that we we're going to run out of cash. I think that more than anything else, it caused me to dream a little bigger. Wow. I just wrote it down. I'm planning to read it. Thank you. With all that, dreaming bigger, you've obviously been able to accomplish a lot. And I know your real passion is philanthropy. And we're going to touch on that. So I want to ask you about what's going on with the proposed tax plans because you are a self-acclaimed and no doubt about it, it's 100% true, student of economics. And you are very much in tune of what's going on with how capital flows and how it relates to our country's policies. I'm going to take advantage of this platform and ask you to talk a little bit about the proposed tax forms that President Biden and his administration have proposed and what your general thoughts on them are and leave the floor with you before I ask you one final question that I ask everybody else. So I'm going to leave it to you to just give your high-level thoughts, if you will, on where we're potentially going with the tax policy changes. Look, it's right. I think you started a place that it's my sense that most of the citizens of the United States are residents, because many are not yet citizens, as my wife wasn't for over 20 years, have come to the conclusion that there is this staggering income inequality in a shrinking middle class that causes dissension and political risk in our country. So I think that's kind of the starting point. I think people that have worked hard and done well should be proud and not guilty, but you know, I don't know that Sarbanes Oxley caused a whole bunch of things in terms of compensation committees and it's caused an acceleration in executive in compensation that's just out of control. So I think you start there. Obviously, the country's run up a tremendous amount of debt. 
started really in 08 or 09, Obama came in, you know, had to fix the economy. We were in a terrible place. The debt grew, although by the end of his term, taxes started to grow as the economy improved. You know, he was there eight years during the next four-year term of Trump. There was a tax cut. The economy continued to do well, but the tax cut caused a greater deficit. And of course, then we had the pandemic at the end of the Trump administration and started Biden one. The economy, of course, frankly, has recovered quicker than anyone has ever thought. But so now you get to a new president, you have to deal with income inequality and a growing deficit. So they need more revenues. In terms of our industry, but there are four big pieces of the tax bill. I think we can set aside the change in the tax rates. I think getting any of them done is going to be hard with the 50-50 Senate. The ones that our industry is all up in arms about are the 1031 exchange, the carried interest, capital gains treatment, and the step-up in basis. Okay, let's be clear. I haven't yet eaten at the step-up in basis trough because I'm still very much alive, but clearly it's been a part of my tax plan. So let's start with the 1031. They got rid of the 1031 on art and jets years ago and it had absolutely no impact on the market. So all the crying in our industry about the market impact is really not going to happen. For a second, we have these tax incentives that the press calls loopholes to encourage certain kinds of behavior that make society better. I don't know what the 1031 exchange does that make anything better except make let guys like us not pay taxes or defer taxes. Now, I know some say there are local taxes that are back, but if you think that all the transactions are still going to occur and the volume of transactions are going to be the same, then all those local taxes are still going to be collected and be put to good use. I look forward to someone sharing with me the positive impact on society of a 1031 exchange. That's one. The, the step up in basis, I mean, Biden's been talking about that since he was the vice president. And clearly, there's a piece of it saving family farms or family businesses so they're not forced to sell to pay taxes. Makes sense. And what needs to be done is there needs to be an inflation index on this, as well as a 10 or 15 year pay in on the taxes to make it equitable so people can afford to not be caused to sell family assets. And I think those are solutions. Look, Congress is not after real estate guys and the carried interest. They're after hedge funds. And I think the solution to that is to bake into the bill a three to five year holding period, which will, I mean, I have a carried interest on one deal that we've been in for 20 years. Now, no one could argue that that's not a capital gain and a long-term hold. So I think, again, there are some nuance in the legislation that can solve that problem. And I don't think we're going to get very far as a country on changing the tax rates. But there may be logic in imposing some minimum 5 or 10% rate on corporate America so that we don't have enormously large companies that have huge volumes of revenues that pay nothing at all. Again, they do it through depreciation or research and development tax credits, which are needed. Look, there are lots of parts of our tax code that are there for reasons. I don't always agree with them, but you know, we're one of the few countries in the world that has a home interest rate deduction. The high tax states are hysterical about the SALT, the state and local tax limitation on deductions, and you know, the, certainly has caused a great number of people to relocate from the Northeast and California to Florida, where we have no state income tax. So 
There are inequities all over the tax code. I'm always for a simplified code with three tiers and rates and no deductions other than charitable because I think it drives certain behaviors. And again, charitable deductions are a classic case where by allowing people to deduct the charitable contribution from their adjusted gross income, it drives a behavior that creates a public good. And that's the question we ought to ask about all of our tax incentives or loopholes. What behavior is it driving that's causing a public good? Very common sense approach. Like, what's the end result, beginning with the end in mind, if you will? It's fascinating perspective that you had. Obviously, it seems like you feel like that the removal of 1031 exchanges potentially have minimal, not as much effect as our industry is predicting that it may. You're kind of reeling in the craziness that and chaos that could happen as a result of it, if it does pass through. So even though this show really has nothing to do with uh, tax policy, typically, you get a special exemption because the world needs to hear what you have to say on it. My little world, at least. But thank you, Aaron. And I would tell you that where I would disagree with you is we all have a say in tax policy because we all have elected representatives and we all have a chance to vote and that we all have a chance to talk to. And you may say, well, I don't know why and I can't talk to them. Call the district office. You can get a hold of any. Not hard to get a hold of a member of the House of Representatives. A little harder to get a hold of a senator or governor. But you have a chance to advocate a thoughtful position. And I think you don't have just an opportunity to, you have an obligation to. We get the government we deserve. True. It's a perfect segue into my final question, which I ask everybody. I'm really excited to ask you about it because I know it's something that you've probably thought about because of the way that your moral compass is set up and how generous that you are. But I'll ask it the way I would ask anybody else. But at some point in time, you're going to be done. You're going to hang it up, whatever it is. You're going to leave the business in some way, shape, or form. And ICSE is going to put out shopping centers today and their weekly email blast. And it's going to say, Stephen Patel with Terranova is out. He's going to go hang out at his home and be with his grandchildren and he's done. And they're going to do a nice write-up on you because you've accomplished a lot in this business. And when they do that write-up, you want them to say what about your legacy? What do you want your legacy to be like? It's a great question. And the reason it's so great is because I was asked it once before. I was debated at lunch for a joint meeting of NAOP and some other office of industrial group. And it was over in Naples and I'm on the stage and we have these nice chairs and Matt Adler, who I know since he's in junior high school. Now, of course, he has a wonderful company. And he says to me, he stands up and says, what do you want your legacy to be in the real estate industry? And I said, gosh, I never really thought about a legacy in the real estate business. I have made stupid money getting to play a grown-up game of Monopoly. That it's had a lot of stress at times, but it's a lot of fun. People are saying, How do you live with so much stress? I say, I give stress, I don't give. <laughs> legacy should be about the people in your lives you help, you know, the people you got into a school, the people that you helped get into a doctor or a hospital that you mentored and grew, and that you can look around your community and country and people that you raised that and that being in wonderfully important positions and moving the needle on making our society better. I mean, when we sell a building, I never go back and look at it. I mean, maybe if I'm in the neighborhood and I happen to go by, but I have more pride sometimes than some of the things we've built. Our favorite architect is Bernardo Forbrescia at Architectonica. And I always tell Bernardo, when we're talking about a new project, I said, you know, when someone walks by this after we built it, I want them to have a visceral emotional reaction. I want them to love or hate it. If they don't notice it, we fail. You know, I don't want to build any more boring boxes. I built too many of those already. 
But I think legacy is all about the good you did with your family, with your community. And, you know, I know people really say that, but that's really who I am. I'm passionate about our public education system. I think it's the single issue that could cause the undoing of our republic. I was at dinner once. I took my son to a dinner with Warren Buffett and Ari said, and Ari's now at Terranova and my successor, and Ari said, Mr. Buffett, if you were president, what would you do first? And of course, Warren had a long, thoughtful pause and he said, I would get rid of private schools. And I was like, why? He said, well, when the highly educated were the most able to protect and enrich our public school system, when they take their kids out, they're not there to protect it anymore. He said, so if we got rid of all these private schools and all of our most valued members of society were really pushing hard to make our public schools better, they would be better. And look, the reality is we had this explosion in private schools after desegregation rulings. And that's what drove it. I don't know that that's what keeps it, but hardly anyone I knew went to private school. So I think that we need to hug our public school systems and our leadership. I spent a lot of time with our superintendent in Miami because he's doing really important work and that's what drives our community. And so what I tell people is it's easy to write charitable checks, but that's not what we need to do. We need to write those checks We need to engage. We need to be on boards. We need to mentor the leadership. And we need to play a role in making important parts of our communities better, whether it's the botanical garden I'm on the board on or our public school that I talk to our superintendent several times a week. Or, look, I spent years working on homelessness. And these are all super important things. But these institutions make our community and societies better. And the reality is, with stronger communities, All of our real estate assets are better. Our tenants have more sales, more educated people growing up in our communities have better jobs. They earn more money and they buy more at our tenants and restaurants. So it's a long game. But if we don't engage in that long game now, it won't be here for us when we're done. So by the way, the ICSC is never going to write that article. I'm going to do this for a long time. Look, I'm going to be 65 in July, which is shocking, but... I mean, I have no intent to stop anytime soon. I mean, maybe in 30 years, but not in the next few years. Sure. They'll be around. They write the articles. They're wide run about you, but it's not going to be for a while. I'm hopeful that we can agree on all of that. But But I'm counting on outliving them. There you go. Good. There you go. My daughter always says, how long are you going to try to control everything? I said, Hannah, if you read all of my estate documents, you would see that at least for a few years after my death. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a perfect way to end the show. I'm going to let you drop the microphone in a superlative, fictitious way from a quite the distance as you're down in South Florida. I'm up here in Charlotte. But Stephen, I can't thank you enough for everything, for your mentorship for me personally outside of this and for helping me provide this platform for everybody to get to hear what you have to say. And I'm certain that anybody who listens to this will garner at least one or two or multiple things to learn from you. And I can't thank you enough for spending the time with me. Aaron, thank you so much for having me. You know, I've told you this before. And I'll tell you and everyone else again, dream big, dream bigger. Will do. You got it. Thanks, Stephen. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Limitless, How to Crush It in Commercial Real Estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did, in fact, get some value out of it, 
Let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts. 